I'm Pastor Nancy. Welcome to this service of worship. We're so glad that you're here to worship. Uh, wonderful, wonderful opening music here. Thank you very much uh, to the band. Um, Pastor Kyle is on vacation. Uh, he'll be back next Sunday as we continue in our sermon series called Summer at the Movies. And as you saw from the trailer, the um, movie is The Shawshank Redemption. It's one of my favorites. I'm excited to be able to share with you uh, this movie and the message that I hear in it that I think speaks to each of us in our lives. And so I'm really, really excited about that. Will you pray with me? Gracious God, I pray that you will speak to me, through me, and in spite of me, if necessary, that the truth of this gospel, the truth of your words, might not be hidden. Amen. I think I can fairly safely say that each of us here has been through or may even be currently going through what we would call a hard time, a difficult time, a time that is challenging, time that, asks, that has us ask that question, why me? Why am I going through this? This is so unfair. Why did this get dumped on me? You know, our marriages go through ups and downs. Our children can certainly challenge us and make life difficult. Sometimes kids um, in school can be cruel. Maybe, maybe you're dealing with an illness or maybe you're dealing with the death of a loved one. Maybe it's a work situation that's really, really hard. Uh, when I was sharing with Pastor Kyle last week kind of where I was going with this, he said it was okay for me to say that it's unfair for me to have to work with him another year. So um, he gave me permission to say that, gave me permission to say that. Life throws stuff at us, and how do we handle it? Do we crawl in a hole and pretend like it didn't happen? Do we break down and stop functioning? Do we curl up in that fetal position and quit? Or do we rise above whatever it is that has happened to us? Shawshank Redemption was filmed in 1994, and it's basically um, set in the 1940s in a prison in Maine. It's based on a short story that Stephen King wrote, and when it first came out, so many people loved this movie. So many people tell me, oh, that's my favorite movie. And yet when it first came out, it was not a box office hit. It didn't win the Academy Award that year. It's taken a while for it to grow on people, and people have grown to appreciate the richness of it. It's just rich on so many levels. I could probably preach three or four different sermons on this. I'm not going to give you all three or four of them today, but you could probably, it's just, it's so many, it's so multifaceted. Um, but um, I'm just so excited. I do want to tell you it's an R-rated movie, so don't think I'm going to go home and show this to my high school kids or my elementary kids if you haven't seen it before. I, I, the story that I will share with you is that the first time I saw this movie, it was in relationship to doing a mission study on a social justice issue with United Methodist Women, uh, which are women who, who love to educate and study and speak out for things where there's social justice issues. And um, the study that year, the ju justice issue was um, prison reform. And they recommended that you watch this movie to kind of get a feel for what, it, what prison life is like, because it's pretty accurate. And my son was in high school at that time, and I uh, called him and said, do any of your friends have this movie? I need to use it. I need to borrow it so I can see it and use it with this mission study. And Ryan, in his wisdom as a high school student, said, Mom, you're not going to show that study to the United Methodist women, are you? That, that movie to the United Methodist women, are you? I'm like, no, son, I'm, I know not to do that. I just need it for research, for background stuff. Um, and the other thing that I learned as I prepared to, to speak to you this morning is there are, I've heard of chick flicks, 
I've heard of rom-coms, romantic comedies. I've heard of dramedies, you know, a comedy and a drama. I'd never heard the term guy cry before. And this movie is supposedly a guy cry movie. So if you haven't seen it, guys, and you're going to watch it in the next little bit, just be prepared. It is the story of a man by the name of Andy Dufresne. You can see his picture. He's young. He's this fancy banker. He's handsome. He's smart. He's self-possessed. He's independent. He's cultured. Possibly, he's just a little bit arrogant. And as you can tell from the trailer, the very beginning of the film, it's in the courtroom, he has been charged with the murders of his wife and the golf pro from their country club, the man with whom she was having an affair. Now, Andy maintains his innocence, but the circumstantial evidence points directly at him. It's hard to believe. To begin with, you question, is he really innocent? Everybody claims they're innocent. Um, he ends up being convicted, and he's given two consecutive life sentences, and he's sent to this prison called Shawshank. And it is a dark and hopeless place. Now, Andy's a pretty smart guy, but he isn't very street smart. So as you watch him get off of that bus and line up with all the new folks that are going in, you wonder, how is he going to do? How is he going to handle this? How is he going to survive in this kind of an atmosphere? And as he comes to serve his time at Shawshank, we're introduced to the narrator of the movie, a man by the name of Ellis Redding, who's called Red, and he's played by Morgan Freeman. When he, they, they first getting off the bus, there's this game that the inmates play, and they all take odds on who won't make it through that first night when they close that jail cell and you know you're locked in for good. And Red takes one look at Andy and says, I'm betting on him. I'm betting on him. He will not make it. But then as he gets to know him a little bit different, he sees that Andy is clearly different. And he says, I could see why some boys took him for snobby. He had a quiet way about him, a walk and a talk that just wasn't normal around here. He strolled like a man in a park without a care in the world, like he had on an invisible coat that would shield him from this place. Yeah, I think it would be fair to say I liked Andy from the start. Now, Red himself has been at Shawshank for quite a long time. He's been denied parole every time that he goes before the parole board. And Shawshank is like a jungle. It's tough to tell in this jungle who is more evil. Are the inmates evil or the people who are running the prison, are they more evil? Warden Norton is a hypocrite. He professes faith in Christ. He professes to be a Christian. And yet he, he, you know, he gives every inmate a Bible and he tells them how important that is. And yet he walks all over everything it means to follow Jesus Christ. He's a corrupt man and he uses the power he has in the prison system to improve his own financial circumstances. And if you know much about prison life, you know that the inmates themselves take advantage of each other whenever they can. And that there's also a system of connection and protection and provision. Red is the one who can connect you. He's the supplier. He's able to get whatever contraband that the men want. Cigarettes, alcohol, whatever. He can bring it in for a price. So the first thing that Andy, first things that Andy asks Red to acquire for him are a very large, full-size poster of Rita Hayworth. It's set in the 1940s, of Rita Hayworth. So they hang that on his wall. And a rock hammer, a small hammer that's used for carving rocks that Andy finds on the grounds, on the yard in the prison. 
It's interesting because as the movie unfolds, we see Andy beginning to transform the prison, to transform Shawshank. He spends the first six years he's there writing a letter a week to the legislature in Maine to get them to you know, allocate a small amount of money to be able to have a decent library in the prison. They have a library, but it's a room that has some old books in it that are really not worth reading. And after six years, after his persistence, finally some funding comes and so do some donations come, and he's allowed to be in charge of the prison. And the guards and the warden figure out that Andy has this gift of financial management. He was a banker on the outside. And so the warden places Andy in charge of managing his accounts, the accounts that he has gained for himself through corrupt and illegal activities, bribery, kickbacks, money laundering, you name it, the warden has done it. So Andy launders the money and he creates a fictitious individual for the account where the money is placed on the outside. And he says to his friend Red, the funny, the funny thing is this, on the outside, I was an honest man, straight as an arrow. I had to come to prison to become a cook, a crook. So Andy gains the trust of the warden and the guards doing their income taxes each year. And then Andy uses these favors that he offers them kind of to, to entice the staff there to give back to the inmates to make it a little more humane place, a little bit better place. One of my favorite scenes in the movie is this group of men who have gone, they've been out, let out of the prison with guards to go and retar the roof of the license plate factory that's in the area. And imagine men out in the hot sun and they basically got like cotton mops and they're swabbing the top of a flat roof with tar. That's basically the work that they're doing. They've got these guards there. And Andy overhears the head guard talking about an, um, an inheritance that he received, some money that he was gonna get. And he was so angry with the government because taxes were gonna take a good chunk of that because of the way it was coming to him. And Andy leaves this line of people who are mopping to go to talk to the head guard and all the other guys' eyes get about this big. It's like, oh, don't go there. You, you know, you're gonna, don't do that. And he, um, ends up helping that guard figure out a way around losing that money. And that's when they know that they can begin to trust him. They can begin to use his knowledge and expertise to help them out. Andy is unfairly imprisoned, and yet he seems to rise above the unfairness of it all. Andy spent a month in solitary confinement because he used the prison public address system to play a duet from Mozart's opera, The Marriage of Figaro. He locks himself in the warden's office and he puts this on and turns on the PA system and the warden is not really pleased as you can imagine. But it's so amazing because they show this wonderful scene of looking down on the yard where all the inmates are milling around and walking. And as soon as those two women sing that duet in Italian, everybody freezes and they look up. They don't understand what it is, but they know it's beauty and they, they're just captivated by it. He gives them that little gift, but he pays for that gift because he ends up spending a month in solitary confinement because he chose to do that. Andy holds on to hope, and he uses the gifts that he's been given, his intelligence, his financial skills, to survive and even thrive inside Shawshank. And he uses those gifts not just for himself, but to also make a better life for others. 
in the middle of all the darkness and the evil of that place, those cold stone walls, Andy seems to have this ability to rise above that. And he even lifts the spirits of others around him and especially the spirits of his good friend, Red. As I thought about this movie, it, it reminded me so much of a story from the Old Testament. It's in the book of Genesis, the very first book in, in the Bible. Um, and you can read that full story in chapters uh, 37 and then 39 through 50. It's, it's kind of long. I'm not going to read all of that to you, obviously. But I encourage you to read that. And um, the basic of the story are, this is the story of Joseph. Joseph is the favorite son of his father, Jacob. And he's the favorite because he's the firstborn son of Jacob's favorite wife, Rachel. A lot of favoritism going on here. And Joseph very much knows that he's the favorite and he likes to flaunt that with his brothers and rub that in. He likes to, to taunt them and, and just he, he's given them such a hard time that when they have the chance, they sell him into slavery. You know, they human traffic him. And then they tell their father Jacob, uh, they, they let him, they don't tell him anything. They bring evidence that Joseph is no longer alive. They let him assume that, that this favorite son has died. Talk about a difficult time. I can't imagine anything much worse than your siblings, your brothers, selling you into slavery at the age of 17. That might be the top of most people's lists. So Joseph uh, gets carried to Egypt and he becomes a slave in the house of Potiphar. And Potiphar is the head of the palace guard there. And scripture tells us that Joseph did well for himself because the Lord was with Joseph. You'll read that phrase quite a few times in these chapters that I suggested that you read. Um, Joseph does well for himself because the Lord was with Joseph. And he does well. He does so well that Potiphar puts him in charge of everything. He's over his household. He's over his finances. Joseph is in charge, kind of like the warden giving Andy free reign over the financials in his place. The problem comes for Joseph when Potiphar's wife becomes interested in him. Joseph is a young man. Uh, I love the common English Bible. It tells us that Joseph was handsome and well-built. And so she's got an eye on him and she keeps inviting him. She keeps asking him to sleep with her, but he holds fast to his faith. Genesis 39, eight through nine tells us, he refused and said to his master's wife, with me here, my master doesn't pay any attention, pay attention to anything in his household. He's put everything he has under my supervision. No one is greater than I am in this household, and he hasn't denied me anything except you, since you are his wife. Joseph gets it. He hasn't denied me anything at all. Um, you're his wife. You shouldn't be betraying him. And then Joseph says, how can I do this terrible thing? and sin against God. Joseph's faith is so important to him that he refuses these advances, even though he knows that it could mean trouble for him. Now, Mrs. Potiphar isn't happy that she's been rejected by this handsome young man. She's used to getting whatever she wants. And so one day when she and Joseph happen to be alone in the house, she grabs onto him um, because she's gonna force him to be with her. And he leaves the coat that he has on with her and flees out of the house to get away from this temptation. And he has left behind for her exactly what she needs to make an accusation, a false accusation against him. So she tells Potiphar that he attempted um, to assault her. Potiphar believes his wife and places Joseph in prison. 
even though he's innocent. And again, we're told that God is with him and that God showed him steadfast love. He gave him favor in the sight of the jailer. He does so well with the jailer that the jailer puts him in charge of everything. There's a pattern here. There's a theme that's coming up. God is with him. He was faithful. Things go well. Now, there are two people in the jail with Joseph who used to work for Pharaoh. Pharaoh is like the king of Egypt, and they did things that upset the king, and so he had them cast into prison. And what happens is while they're in prison, they have these dreams, and they can't figure out what these dreams mean. But God has given Joseph the ability to interpret dreams. So one of the things that got him in trouble with his brothers way back, but he can use it for good, so that's what he does here. So he offers to help these two men and interpret the dreams for them. The first man is the wine steward for the king, and he gets good news, and he gets his job back. So he gets to go work for the king again. The second man is the baker, and his news is not quite as good. He ends up losing his life. Now, Joseph had sent word with the wine steward, you know, put in a good word for me with the king. I'd really like to get out of here. I don't, I don't deserve to be here. And the wine steward doesn't remember that until the king, the Pharaoh, has a couple of dreams himself, and he can't figure out what they mean. And the people who normally interpret them for him can't figure out that either. And so he goes, oh yeah, there was that guy in jail. So he has Joseph, the king has Joseph called up, and Joseph um, interprets these dreams that the king has, and he also tells the king how he would respond to the situations that these dreams uh, are about. And the Pharaoh is so impressed with what he has to say that he puts Joseph in charge of carrying them out. Again, clearly God was with him with all of these events coming in, in his favor. The story then comes full circle when his brothers come to Egypt to buy food so that they can survive the famine. It has spread beyond Egypt. And they come up to buy food. And after some intrigue and testing, they, that family gets reunited and at the end of the book of Genesis, Joseph reminds his brothers that what they meant for evil toward him, God used for good. Genesis 50, verse 20 says, You planned something bad for me, but God produced something good from it in order to save the lives of many people just as he is doing today. You planned something bad for me. You intended this to just be the end of me. But God had something else in mind. And out of this evil thing that you did, God could make something good happen. Now, it would have been very easy for Andy or for Joseph to panic or to freeze with fear or give up given the situations that they're placed in. But both of these men were able to rise above their circumstances and use the gifts that they were given to cope. Andy maintained a sense of hope while he does what he can to survive. You know, we have hints that Andy's hope may have been based in faith. It's not direct. It's kind of indirect. There's some hints about who he was as a person, what his character was. He doesn't drink. He doesn't uh, enjoy the beer with the guys on the roof. He doesn't smoke. He doesn't swear. And he holds his own uh, when he's quoting some Bible verses with the warden. But we don't know for sure that he is a person of faith. Maybe he had hope because he knew he was setting up the warden's accounts in a way that he would eventually benefit from them. Or maybe he had hope because he knew that each night he was using that small rock hammer to chip away at the tunnel behind that large poster of Rita Hayworth. 
And then Marilyn Monroe replaced Rita Hayworth, and then Raquel Welch replaced Marilyn Monroe as he stayed there for the years that he stayed. A tunnel that would eventually lead to his freedom. Maybe he knew that as long as he held on to hope that the evil and the darkness of Shawshank wouldn't get to him. Maybe hope was that invisible coat that he wrapped himself in. He had something that they couldn't get to, something that they could not touch. Joseph at 17, betrayed by his brothers, first enslaved and then in jail, Joseph has God with him. And his trust in God was what guided him and carried him through all of those difficult times. And the faith that he had also gave him the ability to forgive his brothers and bring his family back together. Now, I want to be really, really clear with you um, in this message that I don't believe that God caused the events that happened to Joseph. I don't believe that God has caused anything bad that has happened to you or to me. But I do believe that God can take whatever those events are and bring good out of them. Joseph was enslaved and imprisoned for a total of 13 years before he was set free. And Andy, Andy was in Shawshank for 19 years for two crimes that he didn't commit. And, and he finally is able to break out. He chiseled that tunnel. And every day, I love the clip in the, where it shows him strolling through the thing. He's got his hands in his pocket and he's shaking out the stuff that he is that he has chipped away at day by day, 19 years, persistence, he stayed with it. But when he chiseled out of that tunnel, he escaped through the sewer system of the prison. He escaped through all of that mess and he comes out into a rainstorm with his arms outstretched. He is so thrilled that he has finally gotten out. He's, got, he's a new man and he's got a new life ahead of him. He's headed in that new direction. He's just exuberant and exultant. Paul writes about hope in a letter to the church he started in the town of Ephesus. And he said, I pray that the eyes of your heart will have enough light to see what is the hope of God's call. What is the richness of God's glorious inheritance among believers? And what is the overwhelming greatness of God's power that is working among us believers? This power is conferred by the energy of God's powerful strength. And God's power was at work in Christ when God raised him from the dead and sat him at God's right side in the heavens, far above every ruler and authority and power and angelic power, any power that might be named now, named not only now, but in the future. God's power is far above every ruler and authority, everything that we know, any power that we know, now and in the future. Our hope, our situation, whatever our situation, our hope comes from knowing that we are God's children. God calls us to believe in him. And through his own son, Jesus Christ, we see that amazing power that God has. Jesus died on the cross. He was dead. They laid him in a tomb. He was gone. And yet God raised him up. God brought him back and placed him at God's own right hand. When we put our hope in God, we have the greatest power in the universe on our side. God's power is above every rule and authority and power now and into the future. Whatever you can imagine, God is greater than that. It's like we can wrap ourselves in that invisible coat that Red imagined, imagined that Andy had. 
And I love Paul's letter to the church at Rome, the eighth chapter. These are just phrases from it that come to mind as we think about this hope and the amazing power of God. If God is for us, who is against us? Does it matter who's against us if God is for us? Who will separate us from Christ's love? You know, and then Paul lists the possibilities and goes on to say, I'm convinced that nothing can separate us from God's love in Christ Jesus our Lord. Not death or life, not angels or rulers, not present things or future things, not powers or height or depth or anything that is created. Nothing can separate us from this power that God has in our lives when we believe in him and live our lives as lives of faith. So whatever it is you're dealing with, or whatever it is you have dealt with, or whatever it is you might deal with in the future, God is bigger, God is stronger, God is more powerful. That doesn't mean that God's going to take away the struggle. That doesn't mean that God's going to take away the pain. It doesn't mean that God's going to take away the hurt. It means that God is with you in the middle of it, and God will walk through it with you. God will make a way for you. It means that you're not alone. And for that, we give thanks to God. Let us pray. Gracious and amazing God, we just thank you that you love us. We thank you that you sent your son. We thank you for the gift that he is to us. We thank you for the hope that we have in your precious and holy name, for the strength that you give us to make it through the tough times. Um, as we go out into the world, God, just buoy us up with that strength and give us what we need to face what life hands us each and every day. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Mm-hmm.